You pronounce all the letters except the H's. The H's are both silent. Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative, storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Um, it's Brandon back here with Brian. Hey, everybody. And we got another exciting, compelling, educational, and maybe even titillating case for you today. Um, we thought we'd delve back into some surgical topics. Uh, I feel like we've been neglecting a little lately. I've been forcing Brian into all kind of weird medical esoterica. But um, the, the scalpels continue to loom out there, and we really should understand them. So to kind of get into one of the areas that I think is, you know, it can be important to us in the ICU because there's a lot of critical care aspects, but really ties into a lot of the, I think, technical technical aspects of surgery in a sense that um, if we don't understand what is actually happening with these patients, pre-intra and post-operatively, we really don't understand what's happening with them at all. So, Nobody better to tell us about it than a surgeon. So we have here uh, Travis Hughes, who's one of the vascular surgery fellows down at the University of Kentucky, where Brian is. Uh, he's a second year there after um, his surgery residency, also at UK. So he works kind of uh, alongside and in, in the midst of, of Brian. And Brian's going to take him through a little bit of a case so we can explore aortas and aortic emergencies. Yeah, thanks. So um, thanks for coming on, Travis. We're, we are going to talk about some aortas. All right, so Travis, you, you've been called by the ED. We'll just jump right in. Right, you've been called by the ED. You've got, a, you've got a guy, he's a 57-year-old gentleman, who came in with uh, some abdominal pain radiating to his back, sort of um, up in the sort of mid-thoracic um, area. Uh, he, they sort of started working him up for lots of different things, but, uh, eventually they got around to doing a CT scan and they've discovered that he has a, uh, has a dissection in his aorta. Um, now they're calling you instead of CT surgery because this is a type B dissection. Um, so first of all, I guess, jump in and tell us a little bit about aortic dissections. And for those people who don't know, what a type B versus a type A is and why, why they're calling vascular surgery as opposed to CT surgery, et cetera. And then kind of what's your approach to take when you are on your way down to the ED to see this guy? All right. So to answer your first few questions, a dissection in the aorta is where there is a tear in the intima of the aorta. There's three layers to the aortic wall and blood gets propelled, causing a tear either retrograde or antegrade down the aorta in the intima and media that can extend all the way to the aortic root or can extend down the legs even. Um, type A versus B, that's the, I would say, kind of somewhat phasing out right now, but it's a classical way to describe it. It's whether the uh, dissection is in the ascending or the descending aorta. The problem with this is that if you call your cardiothoracic surgeon they may say that a type A is only proximal to the innominate artery. And you may call your vascular surgeon, they say, no, you know, a type A is you know proximal to the left subclavian. And about 10% of all dissections happen between in that zone. So in the last, you know, few years, we've been moving more towards describing the aorta in terms of zones uh, based on you know the vessels they're close to. But um, the, the most recent uh, you know, nomenclature is 0 through 11, which describes where the dissection is starting from the root. So root to your anominate is 0. And then you, know, you have segmental breakdown of the aorta down to your iliacs. So as, as kind of a long explanation, but we're trying to be more accurate. And some of our um, technologies have improved to work, and we, we can be more aggressive in treating um, at least endovascularly dissections of the aorta in the arch, whereas we didn't previously have the technology to do that. Okay, so previously, dissections in the arch, that was an open surgical procedure, right? Yes. Uh, there are some people who have done off-label operations in that area. 
using um, non-FDA approved uh, devices to fix that, but classically, okay. yes. Right. However, maybe the the thoracic surgeon doesn't roll out of bed to fix an A that ha- that doesn't propagate down to the root. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, that might be too much in the weeds, but it's maybe why you, you get conflicting feedback when you call two different services and both of them say not it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a good point to bring up too, is that you have a, this is like lots of things that we see in surgery, right? Is that there's multiple ser- services who take care of these things. And sometimes the distinctions are very fine. Uh, and those of us who aren't surgeons don't appreciate so who who to call. Um, now, so when I was in the CTICU as a nurse, sort of what I was taught was a, an A dissection is typically a surgical emergency trip to the OR. A B dissection or a descending dissection is often medical management. Is that still true or is that overly generalized? Or uh, there, it, It's yes and no to both those answers. A type A dissection has the risk of retrograde dissection to the coronary arteries, which causes cardiovascular collapse and death. So that's why it's in an emergency. Um, However, there are patients that don't go to the OR with that because they have a a complex, uh, they have basically an unsolvable problem. They're too sick if, you know, they're not a candidate for it. Um, And then type Bs, um, you can manage most of them medically. However, um, there are complicated type Bs when the dissection extends in a way that decreases blood flow to the legs, to the bowels, to the kidneys, um, and, and, or if there's signs of impending rupture, or if you can't control the blood pressure. All these would be indications to be more aggressive with you know an operative approach. Um, all right, so you're you're on your way down to the ED to see this guy. What are some things that you're going through that are going through your head as you approach this patient? I, I, you know, I'm assuming that they had a CTA at this point, um, but I would not review that immediately. I would, you know, first make sure that they are, you know, stable. <laughs> um, make sure they're either not massively hypotensive, not massively hypertensive. Uh, I would make sure that to assess for other signs of end organ ischemia. Do they have a femoral pulse bilaterally? Do they have any signs of, um, of malperfusion of their extremities? Do they have any signs of stroke? Do they have any severe abdominal pain? Severe abdominal pain would clue me into maybe someone, so, someone who may have mesenteric ischemia. So just to explore that, that we talked about the the risks or concerns for progression of these, we'll call them type A's. Um, but basically involving the heart, right? The coronaries or, or a tamponade or something like that. What what are the risks for these more distal or descending ones? It sounds like it would be if it involved the arterial supply to some other organ. Is that a good generalization? Right. End organ ischemia is kind of the word we use. So that could be the any organ in the abdomen, essentially, or or to the brain. Correct. Yeah, or the arm. And just because it's a type B doesn't mean that it doesn't have some kind of retrograde component that could cause a stroke or could malperfusion to the arm. Um, Now, this is not the majority of type Bs, but it's something you have to keep in mind because when you do have these signs of end-organ ischemia, um, if you don't treat them expeditiously, it has a very high, not just morbidity, but mortality. And what's what's the mechanism for this? I mean, we t- you talked about a dissection is a kind of splitting between the layers of the the aorta. If you're going to have ischemia to some other, we'll say, you know, organ that's perfused off the aorta, how does the dissection cause that? So we classify that as either a dynamic or a static. Um, malperfusion. Uh, dynamic is, it, it can be caused by really two things. The intimal flap is occluding the vessel dynamically as the heart beats, or you can pressurize around the true lumen of that vessel, causing cl- causing occlusion of the vessel. Um, static would be the dissection. Uh, it causes an, just an occlusion of the vessel and a thrombosis. So I Either the dissection has created a local clot, which has just completely obstructed the outlet of that vessel, or there's kind of a mobile flap, which is intermittently causing it to perfuse or not perfuse off the the still kind of functional lumen of the aorta. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. All right, so you're so you're assessing for the degree of 
end organ damage, end organ ischemia, I guess. So well, when I see them, I make I want to make sure that, of course, they're not massively hypotensive. I want to make sure they're not having a stroke, not having a severe abdominal pain. They have a good they have a good femoral pulse, and uh, and I kind of go from there. Um, if they are, you know, hypotensive, then that you know, I, that means I'm gonna that that generally makes me think that they have a complicated dissection and I really want to go back and review what's going on, make sure they don't have a big retrograde component, make sure that, you know, we have the diagnosis of a type B correct, make sure they don't have signs of rupture, make sure, you know, because that would kind of make me move more quickly to go to the OR. But if uh, they're very hypertensive, if they're in, I assess if they're in pain, um, that's when I start thinking about, you know, getting um, hemodynamic control, you know, getting what we call impulse control, which is decreasing the blood pressure, decreasing the heart rate to, with the goal of decreasing pressure over time of the aorta that has an injury. So they, they should not be hypotensive, it sounds like. That would really make you think that there's something else. That'd be very atypical. And that, that, that to me, that's like alarm bells. That's mm. something that, you know, this is um, perhaps, you know, has a, you know, a proximal component, um, you know, do, do they have a tamponade, you know, things like that, um, or have they ruptured? So some, some number of these will progress until they actually start to bleed. Yeah. I mean, is that common? That is not, that is not the norm, uh, especially in the acute, in the, uh, acute period for type B's. That is not the norm. Uh, I'm kind of going off into directions of uh, the worst case scenario because I, sometimes I, that's kind of what I think I proved to myself that this is a normal, uh, you know, or a uncomplicated type B dissection. I don't start with the idea that, hey, this is a non-operative type B dissection. Let's just bed them down, decrease their blood pressure, you know, their heart rate, and, you know, go from there. I try to prove to myself that there isn't something wrong that I have to do acutely. And then once I do that, I can take a deep breath and, you know, um, go from there. Well, I think people who don't deal with these, you know, procedurally often mix them up with aneurysms and aneurysms do rupture, right? But that's not kind of the typical concern in this case, although it's possible. It's possible. And, you know, medically managed type Bs, you know, we follow them for years. And many of them, up to 50% in some studies, will degenerate to require a repair. And you repair them because they have a risk of rupture. Okay, so you you mentioned impulse control. So you have some numbers in your head, I'm assuming, right? So what you want your heart rate less than, what you want your blood pressure less than. Um, what are your typical targets? Do, are they sort of patient-specific, or is it sort of across the board? My my target is going to be less than 120 in terms of a systolic blood pressure. My other target is going to be less than a heart rate of 80. Now, you have to be thoughtful. If the person says, I live at mm -hmm. 220, and you start bringing you start bringing down their blood pressure and they, and you, you know, they're having a decreased mental status or their urine you know, output drops off, then you have to, you know, be cognizant. Um, also it, you know, this is probably where we're getting into, you know, maybe a little bit out of the textbook at it, but if you have someone at 120, they are having decreased mentation, you know, decreased urine output, um, you know, they don't feel well, their pain is gone. Sometimes I'll allow them to be titrated up to a higher systolic goal, um, you know, and see what they're, see if they're having pain. Because a lot of these people are chronically hypertensive, right? That's one of the things that leads to these dissections. So how cognizant are you of that fact, you know, when you pick these targets? So, so you're saying sort of start at 120 and then be aware based on their response and how they look. If I think that's a very reasonable approach. Some people may disagree with me on that. And some people may say, Hey, if we can't hit that target and you know, they don't tolerate that name, that's a sign for us to repair this, which is, you know, you know, a school of thought. And I don't think that's wrong either. It's probably the safest thing to do. But, um, I, I sometimes, you know, it, it's particularly if you allow them to get up, you know, say one thirty, they're starting to feel a little better. They don't have, they still don't have any pain. I th I'm, I'm generally okay you know, sitting tight with those people and letting them ride at, you know, slightly higher goals, particularly if they don't have pain. Pain to me is a sign that you're having too much, you know, impulse against that tear. 
Okay. So you talk about impulse control for, for folks who have never taken care of these or are not really familiar with aortic disease like this. Why is heart rate such an issue? I think blood pressure makes sense, right? The higher the blood pressure, the more likely you are to put pressure on that loose, that thinned wall uh, from the dissection. But why do we care about heart rate? Right. So the pressure against the wall is a function, not just of the blood pressure, but how frequently that is occurring. Um, so if you decrease the blood pressure, you, uh, you decrease the heart rate, you're decreasing that pressure over time. Um, it's just, it, it's a mechanical reduction of the impulse against the, you know, the aortic wall. It's actually an overlooked thing. And, and particularly when I'm, you know, walking junior residents through taking care of these people. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. So we're, we're worried about impulse control and that's sort of the big thing with these folks, at least initially, it sounds like. So what are your sort of go-to approaches for, for managing heart rate and blood pressure in these patients? Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, something else? I use IV beta blocker as my first line agent. If they are both hypertensive and uh, tachycardic, I think that if they are, for whatever reason, bradycardic or, you know, in 60s or lower in terms of their heart rate on presentation, I I'm I use calcium channel blockers like nicardipine. Okay. So when, when you say IV beta blockers, do you mean like uh, continuous infusion, uh, PRN doses? I think that if you have someone who, ha- who comes in very hypertensive, it's best to use continuous infusion. If you have someone who shows up maybe 140, you know, you know, you can be perhaps a little less aggressive with, so you don't overshoot it in someone who's, for example, you know, never seen a beta blocker in their life or calcium channel blocker in their life. But um, again, the safest thing to do though, is to start them on a low rate drip and titrate up. All right. And so I think classically we talk about using Esmolol. Uh, is that your go-to beta blocker? <laughs> This is a loaded question because I know your service. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think Esmolol is the textbook answer. I think it's perfectly fine. It has a very short half life, um, so you can titrate it very reliably. However, it's a large volume. Um, you know, some people don't think it's a terribly powerful beta uh, antagonist. I swear, I found Esmolol to be like a placebo half the time. I don't right. know if I'm just misusing it, but it just just sometimes doesn't even seem to affect the heart rate, and I'm like. <laughs> And I think that a lot of um, people that I've worked with would agree with you. And so you're basically putting an expensive, high-volume drug into somebody who you essentially do not want to be hypervolemic um, with very little effect. So, um, you know, I've used labetalol drips, you know. It's longer-acting. Potentially, you may not think it's, you know, as safe. Um but uh, I, I've used it. I've never had a problem with, you know, creating someone, you know, a hypo, hypotensive episode with somebody using labetalol. I think if you're thoughtful and you're, and you know, you go slow, I think it's, I think it's a good drug. And then after that, I would use uh, cardine. I think it's a great drug. And, or if the patient is bradycardic, I'd use cardine. After that, you're looking at nitroprusside. All right, so we're we're going to start them on some medicine for some impulse control. What else are we going to do for these people? Of course, you know they're going to be admitted to the ICU. Place a right-sided, preferably arterial catheter, because we sometimes will ha- have to use the left arm to fix these. But you know that's kind of getting in the weeds. If you if that if the only place you can put it is in the left arm, then so be it. Yeah, I, I place a foley in every one of these patients. They hate it. Sometimes they they look fine. They say, oh, "I'm fine. I don't need this catheter. I don't need this foley." But you know, I think having a good idea of their hemodynamics, and you know, if you're titrating, you know, IV, um, you know, antihypertensives, then the safest thing to do is have a radio arterial line. And um, I also don't let them eat. <laughs> Um, at least for the first 24 hours and give them some clears, but you know, I just, I try to let, I, I, try, I tell them I'm letting you cool off. <laughs> help, help me understand. Cause you know, you said, and this is certainly true that when these patients do have their blood pressure and heart rate managed, you know, they can go many years with slow or no progression of these dissections. Um, and yet when they come in, not very well controlled, we do all these things like you know, IV agents to aggressively control them and admit them to the ICU, which makes it seem like a poorly controlled blood pressure and heart rate could cause their dissection to progress hyperacutely, like over minutes or hours. 
Is that true? I mean, if they, they sit with a high blood pressure for eight hours, um, is their dissection going to be three centimeters longer? Or are we sort of extrapolating the idea to say, well, it, faster must be better, so we might as well just get it under control ASAP? That's a good question. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of data to say that, you know, six hours versus 24 hours does carry a significant um, mortality risk. I don't know if there is, not that I know of, of any in-hospital data of delay uh, control of blood pressure is associated with mortality. I don't know that. But we do know that the longer patients stay without treatment, you know, before hospital, and a lot of it's based off of symptom onset, there is a higher mortality rate associated with that. So You said six versus 24. There is that data or there's not? There is, Yeah. So it, spending that, that difference of having your heart rate or blood pressure not controlled does eventually portend to higher mortality. Right. Um, you know, I did review, review a little bit, and there is uh, some, for the six-hour mark, the average mortality is quoted around 20%. And then the, at 24 hours after symptom onset, it's about 50% mortality. So, you know, I can extrapolate from that that there you know, is a mortality benefit to faster impulse control. But I don't have, I don't know of any studies that have looked at in hospital delays or something like that in higher mortality. There may be, but I, I'm, I don't know. Okay. But at least it seems like there's some physiologic rationale that we're not just playing, you know, on the order of months here. There is some risk potentially if you don't, you know, treat this acutely. Absolutely. Because after you control the blood pressure acutely, Within the first few weeks, you start seeing remodeling of that of that dissection plane, uh, the aorta itself, and sometimes you can even see thrombosis of the dissection, depending on the flow dynamics of the t- different tears in the aorta. So um, there is a um, path. There's a change in the aorta over time after this initial injury that involves fibrosis and scarring as well. Does that risk become less then once you've kind of remodeled and made it more permanent? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the assumption. <laughs> but if you're seeing them acutely, it's probably still pretty hot and you should assume it's at risk of getting worse. Yes. Okay. So you you said you're not going to let them eat. Is that because you're concerned about needing to go to the operating room? Or you said clears, so I assume there's some other rationale there. So my biggest rationale for that is in the first 24 hours, my whole goal is to get them, and this is me being very conservative, but this is, I want them, I want to control their blood pressure mm-hmm. and heart rate. If I can't do that in the first 24 hours, then that makes me, I want to have the ability to take them to the operating room. But if, if things are going very well, then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll progress them quickly. Like if I can get them well controlled, they have zero pain. They're like, doc, why am I still in the hospital? Then I'll, you know, start progressing them maybe, maybe quicker than that. But if I'm having trouble, getting them down, or if I'm going to try a bunch of different agents, I'm not feeding that patient. <laughs> okay. All right. That's, that seems reasonable. So, uh, okay. So impulse control, some monitoring, and I mean, all this sounds pretty straightforward, right? So they're in the ICU. Can I just call it a day and, you know, tell the nurses to c- call me if anything goes wrong? Or I have people check on them every four to six hours from my team, you know, do pulse exams, you know, abdominal exams, make sure that their pain is well controlled, make sure that we're staying within all our goals making sure there's no evidence of in-organ, you know, um, malperfusion. But after after their blood pressure control, after the first 24 hours, I will frequently start titrating in oral medications and then titrating down their IV medications until I can get them reliably controlled in the ICU on those oral medications. That often takes three to five days in some of these patients, particularly if they come in very hypertensive or they have been refractory to certain antihypertensives in the past, you can, it can take a long time to titrate them onto a good regimen of oral antihypertensives. So basically, these folks are coming in, you're putting them in the ICU for sort of aggressive blood pressure and heart rate control with the idea of taking a few days to transition them to oral and then they can go. It provided nothing else goes wrong. Right. Granted, I think that everyone, and I think that the literature would support this, that Every patient should leave with a repeat CTA of their chest out and pelvis before leaving the hospital. Most people would recommend five to seven days after. 
And, you know, with our patient population, we're not in New York City. They can't, you know, take a cab a few blocks and get a CT scan. You know, they're having to travel long distances. So I really try to get that before they leave. After that, we have a bit of an aggressive follow-up regimen and that they come back and see us within a month. Again, with a repeat scan yet again to see how their aorta is remodeling. Um, some protocols advocate for a six-month first follow-up. I, I mean, I, I'm sure that's fine, but ours is one month and then every six months. And if it is stable after two six-month intervals, we then go to yearly. Okay, and then you just continue to monitor them for if it gets worse. Correct. Okay. We we frequently operate on these people. One of the guys I operated on today was someone who had degeneration of their thoracic aorta after a type B dissection. So um, it's very common that over time these degenerate and we do have to intervene upon them. So the the progression could be distal or proximal. It the the progression uh is typically aneurysmal degeneration of where there was a previous dissection. Ah, uh, so the existing dissection you had sort of transforms into more of a, an aneurysm. There 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 is a loss of integrity of that area of the aorta. You, it is also exposed to thrombus, which we know causes is an independent risk factor for degeneration of the aorta, and, uh, and it's you know being pressurized. You know who knows how well their their blood pressure is really being controlled mm-hmm. at home. You know over time, that can degenerate. Even someone who has good normotension that can still degenerate due to those factors. Um, if you saw propagation of your dissection and your and repeat imaging, that would be concerning to me. And I would consider trying to cover their entry tear at that point, doing an endovascular operation if possible. So it doesn't usually extend if you're being medically managed. My opinion of that would be that would be a complex complicated dissection and that would warrant repair. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was about to ask you more of this loss of integrity and kind of aneurysm formation is the more common complication versus Extension of the dissection past the initial tear. Okay. Correct. All right. Um, okay. So, all right. So we get our guy and we get him moved upstairs to the ICU and he's on a labetalol drip and his heart rate's well controlled and his blood pressure's so-so controlled. Um, and everything's going along well. And the nurse pages you and says that uh, his urine output is dropping. What's your threshold for intervention in something mild like a drop in urine output? Are you going to try maybe some volume first, or are you just going to jump straight to investigating if this is a renal artery issue or kidney malperfusion? In this patient, I would make sure I have a good idea of the morphology of their dissection. If their dissection does extend to, uh, if they have a, if they have extension into the renal vessels, then of course I'd be concerned that, you know, they're having end organ malperfusion. Um, one way you can assess this at bedside, if you're in a big institution like ours, you can get a stat ultrasound of the renal arteries. Granted, this can be, you know, a a poor, you know, um, if they're a a large person, this may not be very effective, but in a lot of the patients, you can visualize their renal arteries well and see if there is a hemodynamically significant stenosis. Um, You can attempt to give them volume, um, but if your suspicion is, is that they're having malperfusion of their renals from this, you can prove that with a duplex. So what if the complaint is something a little more ominous sounding, like they're having numbness in one of their feet? So two things uh, you have to be concerned about. You can you should be concerned, of course, about end organ ischemia of the of the leg, but you also have to think about strokes in these patients. So a full neuro and a full vascular exam is warranted in this patient. Um, if you have focal neurologic deficit, um, you know, concerning for a stroke, you know, you, you, you'll go down that route. If you have, you know, occlusive disease of say the left lower extremity, then that, and then that's a patient that I'll consider both of these patients, I consider a, uh, complicated, uh, type B dissection and it would push me, it would push me to the OR. Okay. So you go up to see this guy and he, his GCS is normal. He's able to talk to you, moves everything, but he can't really move his left leg. Uh, his foot is not cold, but it's cool, um, with diminished to absent palpable pulses, at least. Um, 
what you, what's your next step? How far uh, in this scenario? Were, they were within 24 hours. Yeah, let's say six to eight hours after admission. And he has lost a, um, he had previously palpable pulses and he had a loss of pulse in the leg. Yeah. I would repeat his scan and assess the morphology of his dissection. Um, it could also be correct to, you know, to, you know, go ahead and book him for a pair, but I'd like, I'd like to get more information about, um, on his uh, dissection and also place him on a heparin drip as well. Okay. Um, and heparin, because you're concerned about, like you said earlier about clot formation, um, and that's what's causing his ischemia. No, more so that he has dice. He has his dissection is as occluding his one of his iliac vessels. Rarely it'd be ephemeral, but most likely either the common iliac or external iliac on that side. Um, and the heparin, what it does is it prevents further thrombus formation, and it can it buys you some time. It doesn't solve your problem. Okay, so you're you're concerned that it's going to be easier to occlude because of the dissection. Is that no, the, the heparin is just to prevent distal thrombosis. So the dissection is you, you're concerned. The dissection is extending down into the iliac artery or if he has loss of, 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 a, of a arterial flow to his lower extremity. Yes. Okay. So you're going to, you're going to start him on a heparin drip. You're going to rescan him. Um, what sort of makes your decision to go to the OR or not? I think that in a patient, in this patient, I would go to the OR either way, but I would like to see how the how the dissection has progressed. Um, if you can't expeditiously get a scan, it's absolutely reasonable to take the patient to the operating room to revascularize them. Typically, when you revascularize them in, this, in, the, in these cases, your first order of business is to cover the entry tear, and with the idea of decreasing the pressurizing of that of the false lumen. In patients who have occlusions of their iliac vessels, frequently you will have to place iliac stents if they do not have appropriate expansion of their true lumen after covering the proximal entry tear. And at our institution, typically what we do is we play, we cover the entry tear and then we will place self-expanding stents that are not covered to help increase the true lumen after the entry tear. And then we will place iliac stents in order to keep the iliac arteries open or patent if they have occlusions of the iliac arteries. Okay. And, uh, and that's probably a little in the weeds. And there's a lot of, I don't want to say controversy, but there's a lot of ways to fix that problem. That's how we do it here Okay. for the most part. <laughs> what if there is involvement of, of other vessels? We talked talk about the renal arteries or other. Right. Organ. So, uh, the endovascular, uh, treatment for this is again covering the entry tear doing some maneuver to try to expand the true lumen we use um uncovered stents you can think of circular chicken wire that has that expands radially so the idea is that you help you pressurize that wall from the true lumen outwards to help re-expand the true lumen there's been a few cases where patients have had both renal basically had almost no no flow from their aorta to their legs or their viscera. And we've played we covered the entry tear rapidly and placed a self-expanding stent. We shot our angiogram and their celiac SMA and both renals filled. So um most of the time you can improve blood flow to these vessels by covering the entry tear and improving the flow dynamics. Because again Many of the, this is typically a dynamic occlusion of that vessel. If you have persistent issues with getting blood flow to that vessel, whether it's a renal or a mesenteric vessel, you can place a stent to, to open it up. If you, if you have suspicion of thrombus within the vessel, you can do a thrombectomy using um, basically an intravascular vacuum. We call it percutaneous mechanical thrombectomy. But, um, there are other adjunct mover, maneuvers you can do after you improve the flow dynamics of the true and false lumen. Okay. And there's a lot of this will be guided by your uh, imaging. Yeah. And in a patient like this, I, I mean, I'm of course not looking at the scan. If I have a high suspicion with their scan previously that, that I know exactly what's going on, it's totally reasonable to go to the operating room. But if it's something that I had a low suspicion for, like if the, if the dissection did not propagate down to the iliacs and then all of a sudden they had an occluded 
you know, left common iliac, or that's my suspicion. I'd really want to know, you know, what the morphology of my of my dissection is and how it changed. What dictates? I assume all this that we've been talking about is endovascular. So, what dictates endovascular versus open repair? There's a very narrow indication for open repair nowadays. It used to be, you know, the only thing we had available for these patients. Basically, you replace the aorta with a graft um, from the proximal descending thoracic aorta to healthy aorta distally. Um, the in-hospital mortality or the mortality from that was 30 to 50 percent. Um, and that was and this is when we were doing a lot relatively a lot of this. Um, you know, it's shown that if you have low experience with it, with these you know, large aortic procedures, you have higher mortality. We have not done an open repair of it for a dissection since I've been a resident or fellow here. I think it's relatively rare. So, you know, it's an artery, incredibly morbid and mortal operation, and we almost never do it anymore. So I, I think that the indications for doing it would be extremely narrow. Um, we can fix the vast majority of these um, with an endovascular with endovascular approaches nowadays. Um, we've actually we actually there's a new FDA approved device that allows us to place them in the arch even our our, our graphs in the arch. So um, the outcomes of people who get endograft uh, placement for these has carries more of a 10% mortality. And that's something I'm kind of throwing up that, that that should be taken with a grain of salt because who are we actually doing this for in the acute mm-hmm. setting? Um, patients that are, have complicated, you know, typees, but I would much prefer that 10% number to a 30 to 50% number. And also it's been, it's done so rarely. I'm not even sure if that's an accurate representation of the mortality of doing an open operation. So, Long story short, I struggle to think of a good reason to do an open repair um, with the tools that we have available now. Um, okay, so you take him to the operating room and you repair this. Now, you you talk about covering the, the entry tear, um, and then you said these open, non-covered, I think is the word you used. So those will allow blood flow through them, right? So if you place them in the aorta, you're not worried about blocking off access to the mesentery or the renal artery or anything like that. It's a theoretical mm-hmm. risk. I, I mean, these are the, the interstices of these grafts are quite large, actually. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's very theoretical. Um, some of these patients will have degeneration in these areas and will need very complex in, um, repairs that we, at our institution, we, we do these repairs. And if you do have an, an interstices crossing that uh, vessel, then that can be, that can cause a problem. But in practice, I don't, I mean, I, I, haven't, I don't know if that's actually happened in our experience, but I'm sure that there's a description of that, you know, ca- causing an issue with, repair down the line. Okay. Um, all right. So you get this guy repaired and he comes back to the operating room. Now, what are we looking at? Are we, do we still need the same kind of impulse control goals that we had before, or is that fixed now? And we can just let him be normal. In theory, you, you do not. Um, and actually for a lot of these patients, you'll be driving their blood pressures up because now you have an increased risk of spinal cord ischemia. The spinal, the spinal cord, and particularly in the thoracic spinal cord, receives the vast majority of its blood supply from these arteries that come off of the aorta, and you've covered them now. And so you have to have a low threshold for, of suspicion for spinal cord ischemia if these patients now develop lower extremity symptoms. Neural uh, loss, you know, like weakness in the lower extremities, typically proximal, occurs before distal. <coughs> loss of sensation can also be another sign. Our practice is we remove those goal, those blood pressure goals, and typically we drive our maps up or allow the maps to get closer to ninety plus. Uh, it, particularly if we're worried about spinal cord ischemia. Are you placing lumbar drains in these people routinely, or and if not, when would you? Not in the acute setting. 
Um, but, uh, for example, I repaired a guy today who had a previous dissection, degenerated, and we did we did a repair of his thoracic aorta, and he has a lumbar drain that was placed before we placed our, our graft. I think that, again, if you have a suspicion that this patient is developing spinal cord ischemia, it should be an immediate call to whoever does it in your hospital. In our hospital, it's the neurosurgery team. Some hospitals, it's a combination of neurosurgery and the anesthesia teams. But... Um, you should that, that should necessitate an emergent evaluation for a lumbar drain. Our protocol involves giving these patients high-dose IV steroids um, and also giving them naloxone and driving their MAPS 90+. plus. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. So that was what I was going to ask about was the steroids and the naloxone. Steroids, I sort of understand. Um, what's the rationale for naloxone? The idea is, is that you decrease the spinal cord excitation uh, oxygen consumption of the spinal cord and therefore de decrease any the metabolic needs of the spinal cord decreasing you know the ischemic effects on the spinal cord that's one mechanism uh, i'm sure there's a pharmacist pulling their hair out somewhere right now but uh that's the mechanism that i go by so that's something you just started and it's just kind of goes like it's not we're not titrating it to any specific parameters or anything like that ours is a flat dose based off of weight it's a weight-based flat dose and how long do you run that for? So if someone is asymptomatic, 48, so typically it goes one of two ways once you place this, their spinal, your, your lumbar drain. Either they get better mm -hmm. or they don't. If they get better and their symptoms resolve, I keep all of these medications on for a minimum of 48 hours. And that, that becomes a lot harder when it, when it appears that these deficits will be permanent. And I th think that if they're showing any signs of improvement, I don't stop anything until they plateau. What other things do we need to look at postoperatively in these people? Pseudoaneurysms of the groin sites. If we use the arm, you know, uh, brachial sheet, if we use the arm in, in the upper arm, brachial sheath hematoma, pseudoaneurysm there. Um, you can have, you know, axocyte complications uh, other than pseudoaneurysms. You can have, you know, distal emboli. The risks, uh, um, also, of course, if you're in the arch at all, manipulating the arch, you can have postoperative strokes as well. You know, in, in my mind, I would consider, you know, the risks to be very similar to, you know, elective thoracic endograft placement. And if they, in general, if they don't have an access comp site complication and if they don't have spinal cord ischemia, um, they they generally do very well. Okay. Or if, or if they did not have, you know, you know, tissue loss from their end organ ischemia, you know, if they went into renal failure because, you know, they, uh, or if they develop, you know, if, if ischemia of their bowel and acquired a bowel resection, if they, you know, had a stroke, if they have, you know, if we had to do fasciotomies in their leg because they had prolonged ischemia at their lower extremity, you know, these all are, you know, fraught with issues. Okay. So let's assume, let's say our guy, he goes for his emergency repair, he comes back with no extra complications. Um, how soon can I expect to see resolution of that paresthesia or, you know, loss of mobility in his foot? Like when I, when I wake him up and get him off the ventilator, should he be able to move his foot again? Or is this going to be some residual effect for a while? That depends on how long the ischemic insult okay. was. If the ischemic insult was on the order of an hour or two. Also, if the patient is at baseline, a vasculopath and has, you know, relative ischemia in our arterial insufficiency at baseline, um, you know, those patients will in general do better. Now, if the patient has had, you know, four hours or five hours of ischemia to their leg, I mean, you're going to have significant tissue loss at that, you know, in those patients, we're almost, you know, certainly we've done a fasciotomy on the lower extremity. They'll have, they'll probably have issues with bleeding. They'll probably have permanent both nerve and muscular um, injury. And, you know, if it's been longer than that, you know, four to six hour range, it may not even be a salvageable limb. So, you know, some people would advocate even for primary amputation, but I think that's quite a, you know, depending on the mm -hmm. scenario, but, um, you know, again, if it's short, you know, hour or two, us getting them to the OR and, and you know, getting them reperfused and the, the likelihood they're going to have, you know, severe long-term deficit is low. They should be able to move their leg afterwards. They should have improved you know, sensation rather rapidly. Prolonged ischemia will, will likely have residual neurologic and uh, deficit in soft tissue injury. Okay. So if I get this guy extubated, he says, I, my leg still feels the same. That's not necessarily a, a poor sign that I need to be, I need to be worried to call you or it, it's just 
potentially he's going to have long-term problems. It depends. I mean, you know, if someone wakes up and has symptoms like that, I first go back to doing a, a, a neuro, neuro and a vascular exam. If their pulse exam is you know, shows uh, no femoral pulse, you know, pallor, that makes me think that the stent is occluded mm, or okay. they've had some kind of postoperative complication. If, you know, they have a palpable pulse, you know, they have no signs of arterial insufficiency, it's probably the result of their injury. You know, also if they're having new weakness, that particularly proximally after this revascularization, that also bring me back to do they have spinal cord ischemia? Okay, yeah, true. So, are you continuing the heparin then post op? No. Okay, so but you're concerned about the possibility of stent thrombosis, right? So, if you're if you placed iliac stents, um, and this is another area where you're, where you're not going to have terribly good support in the literature on what exactly to give these patients, but at a minimum, they need to be on aspirin. And I would recommend loading these patients on aspirin. Um, some people advocate for Plavix, um, either permanently or for a short period of time. Uh, and then even amongst those people, there is some uh, discrepancy on whether you load them or not. My personal preference would be to place them on Plavix once I know that they don't have a neurologic deficit. Because if you load someone on Plavix and then you need a spinal drain, you know, you're you're out. Of, I mean, you're going to have a bunch of platelets and you have more things to, to muddy the picture. Um, but I would always give them, if they're, if they were not previously on aspirin, I would give them, I would load them on aspirin, rectal aspirin, and then start them on 81 a day of aspirin. And then if they get to the, the next 48 to 72 hours with no signs of neurologic deficit and I placed iliac stents, I would put them on Plavix. But Again, I don't think that that's terribly well supported one way or the other, and it's t- probably fine to let these patients go home on aspirin. And the aspirin, at least, is the sort of th- is this like coronary stents where if they start missing their antiplatelets, they're at a higher risk of of thrombosing these stents. At least in the that would be my worry. Term that would be that would be my concern. And, and 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 it wouldn't necessarily be acutely. It, I've actually this, this, this as a trainee, this can be quite uh, frustrating because you'll have one person say aspirin, one person say plavix, one person say aspirin and plavix forever, one per- person say aspirin plavix for three months. Um, and then I'll for me, I'll go to the literature, I'll engage our pharmacist who is excellent and come up with no answers. But aspirin is s- certainly you know, a medication that they should go on. Physiologically, I mean, this is a much larger vessel than a coronary artery, so we're probably not talking about you completely thrombosing it, but maybe trying to avoid forming any clot on it. Right, and then also, if you placed any kind of, okay, also, if you've placed any kind of mesenteric or renal stent, I think Plavix is a necessity. Those vessels are, you know, six to nine millimeters, they're small vessels. I think those stents are are actually liable to thrombosis if you're not on a good antiplatelet regimen. I mean, iliacs, particularly in a male, are larger vessels. You know, normal can be even up to say 1.5, you know, centimeters in some some of these big guys. Do you need aspirin plaques for that? Probably not. Um, but I've seen enough iliac stents uh, thrombose that I'm a I'm a bit cagey to just send someone home on aspirin. Sure, sure. Maybe I'll change. You know, more to come. So now, what's your criteria for saying it's okay for this patient to sort of transition out of the ICU, either to the flu- I assume you send them to the floor first and then home, or home from the ICU sometimes. Or I think the way our hospital works a lot is I'm discharging a lot of these patients from the ICU. Um, but once that once they have, are on oral um, antihypertensives, they've gotten their repeat scan. They can and uh, they have no signs of ischemia. They have no pain. I think they're fine to go. You know, I think that they can get out of the ICU as soon as you have good control of their uh, blood pressure with oral antihypertensives. Again, with no pain and no signs of endocrine ischemia they're okay to leave the ICU. Brandon, you have anything else you want to add? I think that's all I've got. So No, I, I think, like I said, this is a really nice kind of look at the surgical side of things. Um, I guess maybe briefly, long-term complications of these, are there any things you guys think about in particular? Um, it seems like we occasionally see 
what I imagine are rare ones, like things eroding or thrombosing or just things kind of going wrong. But um, are there any things you would more often expect to see? After stent graft repair? With, with good monitoring, you should be able to, you know, catch, you know, stent stenosis, which is probably the most common issue long-term with these. Um, and you're talking about tracheas, you're talking about, you know, aorta enteric fistulas. I mean, that's a nightmare. That is, you know, very, very rare. It does happen. Very rare. You know, these stents becoming infected, particularly if placed in an emergent setting, um, when maybe things aren't ideal. That's also a very rare complication. You know, having what we call endoleaks, uh, which, you know, there's five different kinds of endoleaks, um, you know, two of them really need repairs. Um, that's a rare complication that can happen. Stent thrombosis, stent stenosis. On the, you know, infectious side, because we, we'll get these people who had a stent 10 years ago and now they seem septic or something. Would you consider one of these stents a potential, um, I guess, nidus for a bloodstream infection? Or when it's long standing, is it's sort of all covered and uh, endothelialized and it just looks like blood vessel? It does not look like blood vessel. <laughs> having taken out some of these, but there seems, there seems to be a lower risk long after over time. Um, you know, it's a theoretical risk. Of course, if you're worried about them being infected, um, it's typically pretty obvious on CT scan when they are infected, they're surrounded by fluid collections, phlegmon, and the worst case scenarios, they have gas containing collections around them. Um, you know, patients generally have pretty significant systemic symptoms as well. Um, the tests that we use as our, I wouldn't say gold standard, but if we are, if we have, we're having trouble making the diagnosis, we can sometimes use a tagged white blood cell scan to show us that the graft is infected. And then, and then after, you know, after that, you have, you have to have some pretty difficult discussions with patients, depending particularly what stints are in place, where they are, and, you know, the comorbidities of the patient because not all of those are fixable. Oh, well, thanks for joining us. This has been a good discussion. I think, like Brandon said, it's always good to get, um, especially those of us who work in a surgical IC, it's always good to get the opinions from the surgeons because we often don't know the ins and outs um, of you know what's going on in the operating room and with these these folks, um, and, and even long-term for that matter. So, uh, so it's been good, I think. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And as always... These are just the opinions of ourselves, not our institutions that we work for, uh, and shouldn't be construed as medical advice. This is for educational purposes only. Uh, and please, for uh, heaven's sake, don't take our word for it. Double check everything before you act. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.